0: Well, we're in, like I said, we're in Exodus 12 this morning, and we'll be finishing up. In the, in the past two Sundays, we've, we've crossed a lot of Scripture, uh, so we've had a kind of a broad reach of Scripture that we've tried to ingest and process. The, this morning is a little bit towards the opposite side of the spectrum. We're going to look at a little bit of Scripture and hone in on um, a tiny, not a tiny idea, but an idea that's happening amidst all of what's been happening uh, that's what we're going to do. And it's going to s- s- pivot around this notion of um, initiation into the body of uh, the family of the Israelites or membership as a Jew. Um, and it will eventually translate to those same ideas in the Christian church. Uh, what does it mean to be a member of the body um, in, the, in a most spiritual way? But all the spiritual always has a practical reality to it. And how does one initiate themselves into that community? That is, that's the heart of this morning's text. And and what I wanted to start with is just some secular ways that we deal with initiation. I think most of us are aware of uh, various communities or groups that you may have to be initiated into. If you were a Cub Scout or a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout, there were these rites of initiation and I don't mean like uh, getting a noogie on the head or anything like that. I mean uh, uniforms and that sort of thing. Um, the generation just older than me, uh, you, things like the Elks Club and the VFW and those things are, have waned over time. But there was a strong understanding of, of membership in, uh, in those sorts of things. Uh, and that's what I'm talking about is, is that initiative right... When you go from being a guest, you know, a guest of something, to being part of something, teams. Most athletic teams have this sort of. I had to shave my head my freshman year in high school to be on the lacrosse team. It was the initiation, right? Um, And there's 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 other ones that that exist. When when I in my life as um, as a pilot, specifically in a fighter squadron. There's a very serious initiation, and that is getting your call sign. Your call sign is a a big deal, a very big deal. It's not a nickname. It is a new name. In fact, I've gone years and never even known the first names of most of the guys in my squadron. Never knew them. The first name is relegated to the role of middle name. Who cares? That's not who they are. Uh, we used to charge money. You would come in, there was first name Fridays you would have. It was a way to raise money. If you, You'd have to call somebody by their first name, and if you couldn't, you had to put money in the jar. And that's how we raised money, because nobody knew first names. But the way it happens, the way you get a call sign, the ceremony itself is, uh, neither is it fitting for this setting, or does it matter? But the, uh, the ceremony comes at a specific point, in the life of a young pilot, when the pilot has proven that he is, the phrase is, mission-ready. When the pilot has qualified to demonstrate to the squadron that if the squadron had to go to to combat, that they would actually want to take him. Okay? When you're mission-ready, that means when you deploy, you're on the hopper to go and to fight. And, and there's a period of time when you arrive in a squadron where you are seen and considered and treated as a complete liability. You're, you're value detracted from a flight, which is true. But then as you train and as you train more and more and more, there's a, there's a point where the squadron says, we want to call that person one of us. And that's when you get your call sign and from that point on it stands for all time in the entire community that's who you are and it means you've essentially been accepted into the family of your squadron that's initiation it's meaningful initiation and you can you can come and be alongside of an idea like that you could you could you could you know come and, and want to be part of a squadron like that, but the, until you're invited in, until you're initiated in, you're really not one of them. And this morning as we're in Exodus, I want, we're going to begin to see this, see this at work in the people of God, and it translates. Everything that happens here in the Old Testament translates. So when we talk about circumcision, that translates to baptism. When we talk about the Passover, that translates to the Lord's Supper. So everything that we're going to see here has some kind of translative nature to it. Um, but it's good this morning just to, to observe it. I'm going to pick up in Exodus 12, verse 33. This is... So the plague of the, over the firstborn son has struck. Pharaoh has said, get out, go, and bless me also, but go. And this is what happened, okay? Let me read 33 through 42. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all of the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Okay, we can work with this for a little bit. Uh, let's just start at the top, and, and just, I want to draw a few things out that uh, are important, but not, not central to the point of it. But if you look at verse 33, what you see, if you're wondering why, why is the Lord putting what he's putting in, what you, what you see is the Lord wants to make it very clear the immediate efficacy of, Of his judgment. So the Lord told Moses, One more trial, one more plague. It'll be the plague on the firstborn, and then Pharaoh will let you go. And the intent of Scripture is to show you how immediately it took place. The Egyptians were urgent to send them with haste. So the Egyptians didn't say, Fine, you can go, you can go. They said, Leave, please, leave, go go. I mean, it just shows you the strength of the arm of the Lord, that when it finally happened, especially when the tendency that might have been in Moses and in the, in, in the Hebrews was, it, are they ever going to relent? Still, they did not let the people go. Still, they did not let people go. Still, they didn't. This trend of the Pharaoh hardening his heart, and Pharaoh's heart being hard, and Pharaoh having his heart hardened, and this, it appearing though, there's just no break in the dam. It will never happen. And the Lord said, relax, one more time, I'm going to do it, and then I'll let you go. And the moment he does it, they send them away urgently with haste. But in the 39th verse, this is the word that's used. Talking, it says, the bread was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt. It's a great word to give you the sense in which the Egyptians maybe wanted to rid themselves of this curse. Numbers thirty three has this. Uh, I'm going to read it for you. It just gives a little more color. This is important parts of the Bible to experience inside you. Have a picture of. I think. Just listen to this picture as it's painted. This is Moses recounting in the book of Numbers the journey of Israel out of e- out of Egypt. And I'm just going to read one verse from it. And it's it, so it's one verse of a long litany. But this is what it says: They set out from Ramses. In the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. That picture is... uh, It just does something to think, you know, just imagine the multitude of the Hebrews leaving Egypt, and along the sides of the roads and in the fields are the Egyptians burying their sons. Um, You get a sense of the spirit of go. Go. Verse 40 says, on that very day, is what it says. Now, the tendency to read that just the way the English comes together is as though it's 430 years to the day. That's really not what the Hebrew is trying to say. The Hebrews trying to say the very day after the Lord struck. That very day they left. It's another way of assigning the the immediate efficacy of this whole thing. It's not as though, if you've ever been in a business that gets bought out, there's a classic 18-month overlap where they hold on to the upper executives for 18 months. They bring someone in. It's, it's this migratory you know, migrating the company from the hands of one group of executives to the other is you know, you can imagine, you know, okay, enough of, of enough of the trials, Moses, we'll work it out. Okay, so let's just work through this, let's contractually figure out who's what. None of that happened. The day, the day after, the morning of get out. Six hundred thousand men on foot, plus women and children. That is roughly equivalent to the city of Philadelphia leaving the day after. The Lord wants to show us how, when he acts, how effective he is. And oddly enough in all of this, there is, someone might say, looking at 400 years for the Lord to do this, someone might feel like the Lord was slow. Where, Lord, where are you? You may feel this in your own life. Lord, where are you? This is when we remind ourselves the Lord is not slow the way we would like to consider him, slow. But we feel his slowness. Where where is the Lord in all of this? Where is the Lord in all this? And then he acts, and it's too fast for us. You know, the people, it says they had no provisions. They hadn't even packed. They had their staff and their belt and their sandals and a bowl of bread. I don't even know what that looks like quite, wrapped up over their shoulders. They brought a knapsack of lunch to leave Forever. Is the image we get. It feels to us as people that the Lord is slow until he moves, and then sometimes he's too fast. It's because the Lord is on time and is wholly effective. Okay, but this is the verse I want us to start to linger around. Verse 37. It says six hundred thousand men on foot, and then it says in thirty eight a mixed multitude also went up with them. So you have the Hebrews, who are kind of numerically defined as 600,000 plus their families. That's the image you get. Is there's all the Jews, 600,000 of them in their families, their wives and daughters and children. They went, then mixed in, and alongside and around this number is a mixed multitude. Multitude of others. We don't know what they are. They're mixed. But we know they're not Jews. Otherwise, they would have been numbered with the 600,000. So it's non-Jews, non-Israelites, various people from various other situations. I can't tell you any more than that. You know, Could some of them have been Egyptian? I imagine some of them could have been Egyptian. Sure. Could some of them have been other races of slave enslaved people? Sure. I imagine some of them could have been other slave peoples that thought, maybe this is the time to spring. You know, I'll throw a kneading bowl over my shoulder and look the part. I don't I don't know I don't know. We don't we never know. There's this verse, and there's one other verse in the Bible that actually deals with this crowd. We just know there is a multitude of people. So it didn't say, and also there was a few others, kind of onesies and twosies. It says there's this mixed multitude of people who were not Israelite who migrate out with the Israelites. At one level, as a Gentile Christian, so as someone who has come to Christ but not through the Jewish line, as most of us in this room are, this sort of thing excites me to see right from the very beginning the fact that the salvation that God offered his people, uh, that others were included in in the journey out. I I see that, and it it excites me. But also, it intrigues me as to why would someone leave? Why would someone leave? And these are the thoughts. I'm sure there could be others, but here's a few thoughts. One is, some may have been convinced about the Lord. After all, The Lord said in these plagues, the reason I'm doing this is so that the world might know who I am, so that all might see and know there is no other God but me. So I would imagine that for all the peoples in Egypt, experiencing some, whether they're experiencing it up close or experiencing it from a distant town or whatever, they are learning about the God of the Jews, and maybe some people were intrigued by that to follow. In a sense of going, well, I'm less connected to the land than I am to the God who reigns, and I would want to follow that people. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe some of them were attracted to the idea of freedom. If they were slaves, maybe they thought this is whatever the future reality is that Sir Beetz being in Egypt as a slave. Maybe either way, whatever the all their thoughts are, we don't know who they are necessarily, nor do we know um, exactly why they're doing this except you could assume that they would assume that their life is better with the israelites leaving than not and i and i the reason i'm saying it this way is because as a church as a church body when there's the church family and then there is a mixture of people around the church body who come and connect themselves and travel and they're not initiated They're not. You may be one of these people. You may not even be Christian, but you're here. For some reason, you're connected. For some reason, you're you're into this. For some reason, but you're not a member, and you're not you. You know how what you think about God. I'm saying I don't. I don't know. There's not a lot written about you. Uh, Various reasons people show up, and they're here in, in the Bible. Now this group here. One thing we need to appreciate about the mixed multitude is they are not the people of God. So there's the Jews, and then there's the mixed multitude. And the mixed multitude is not the people of God. Now this falls hard on our ears, our modern ears, because we want everyone to be people of God, I guess. But in this case... The Jews are the people of God, and they have been initiated into the people of God. They've been circumcised. God has spoken to them. They've been, in some way, organized. And then the group that's coming alongside, they're attracted to something about what's happening, but they're not the people of God. By the way, the only other verse in the Bible that talks about him is in Numbers 11. And this is what it says. Uh, Numbers 11 is this moment where everybody misses their home in Egypt. It's one of many moments, many moments where people miss. They say, you remember how delicious the cucumbers were on the Nile? Okay, they pretty much say that. But it says this. This is what's being said about the mixed multitude that endured alongside of the people of God. It says, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. That's it. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And it says, and also the Israelites. And then they begin to go, oh, we had meat and fish. You know how cheap the fish was? And That's what Numbers goes on to talk about is the smorgasbord of deliciousness that was in Egypt. And we have manna. That's that, that conversation. So it doesn't, even, it doesn't necessarily even paint the mixed multitude as people who are singularly attracted to the Lord. they are various people with various things. They certainly, in this case, had a craving for the old life. So what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that these people are not the people of God yet, Okay, but rather that they travel among the people of God. They travel around them. They see there's a difference, some kind of difference. There's something that about the community of God's people that either they connect with the God or they connect with the community or they connect with the story. They're, they're connecting with something, but they are not actually initiated into the Lord's people. And I'd ask this morning, by the way, if maybe you're one of these. So I'm gonna, I have to speak gently in some ways and, and clearly in others. Certainly, if you're here, the goal is not to like brand you by the time before you get out the door and make you an initiated of a secret order. That's not at all what the goal or the heart is. But the heart, my heart is, for if you've been traveling alongside of this fellowship, for months and months and months and months, yet you have preserved in yourself an independent identity that says I'm, I'm with them, but I'm not of them. Like, I do want to turn on a flashlight and poke at that. You see that? Why, why not, why are you not of us? Watch what the next section of Scripture does. So in one sense, you feel like you leave the conversation of the mixed multitude. If there was ever even a conversation, it was a a, a verse. But then, when the Passover becomes discussed, listen to the importance of membership. And I I don't mean that in a concrete way, but I don't not mean it in a concrete way. Just, I'll read it and you'll hear it. Verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover, colon. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and should keep the Passover to the Lord, let him let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Did you see the boundaries that were set? Verse 43, no foreigner shall eat it. In other words, speaking of the mixed multitude that's traveling alongside of the Lord's people, he's saying, listen, they can come along, they can travel with us, they can experience a lot of the benefits that may occur in the camp of the Israelites because of the God of the Israelites, but they cannot enjoy, they cannot participate in the defining meal between me and you. That's what he says. He says, when it gets down to identity, it's important, it is important to recognize that they do not share your identity. I am your God. I'm not their God. This is the Lord's Supper, by the way. I mean, so the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Passover. Passover. Right? Jesus Christ took the Passover meal and fulfilled it into the Lord's Supper. He said, this meal you eat, I am this meal. So do this in remembrance of me. And he gave that to the church. And this is why the Lord's Supper is what they would call a closed ordinance. It's an ordinance for the believers of Jesus Christ only. It's for this very principle right here in Exodus. Exodus. The thought is, is why, why would we want to confuse both ourselves and others to say that whether or not anyone believes in Jesus or is actually following Jesus, they can partake in Jesus. The notion of the Lord's Supper is, is those who, those who enjoy the Lord's Supper do so because they are in Jesus Christ. And those who are not, do not. And there's a great level of importance in some of this. Now, it feels like rules. I know it feels like rules, but let's listen to the spirit of the rules. The spirit of the rules is, why would we want to confuse a world that doesn't believe in Jesus, that they have received the salvation that Jesus offers? The salvation that Jesus offers is for those who are in Christ. Christ. And in the scriptures here, you'd say, well, how do we know who's in Jesus? And they would say, well, it's easy to know who's in Jesus because the head of their household is circumcised. They would say, well, when we are circumcised, that is our right of of initiation into the people of God. Now, the right of circumcision, just as though Passover has been translated into the Lord's Supper, circumcision has been in many ways translated into baptism. This is, let me read from Colossians just to give you a sense of, of how the language flows from one into the other. This is Paul writing to the church, in, uh, the church of the Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed its rulers and authorities and put them open to shame by triumphing over them. Now, right before he says all of that, listen to this. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised. So there's this this teaching, this teaching that comes strong into the church, which is physical circumcision is of no value for the mixed multitude. What do we do with the mixed multitude who's now coming around the church? The question was, well, what do we do with them? And they said, listen, we do not need to make them be circumcised because we are looking at the spiritual reality, and the spiritual realities is that God has always been looking for a heart that is contrite and broken before the Lord, a circumcised heart. And when we see that, we practice the the ordinance of baptism as a way of reflecting that. So you have Paul the Apostle, who in one hand is saying, stop circumcising the mixed multitude, but continue baptizing the mixed multitude." So there's this, the church has today two ordinances. It has the ordinance of baptism and it has the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And they are showing up right here in Exodus 12. The Lord says, listen, no one, the entire congregation of my people must, shall take the Passover, the Lord's Supper. And the congregation of my people are known by the fact of whether or not they have been, they've come to me in faith, and that is expressed through baptism. Now, in one sense, there's this exclusionary idea, you know, and I feel, I'm very keen of the time and and the context in which we share this. There could have been a time where we'd said, you need to repent and accept Jesus Christ, and then you need to be baptized, and then you can take the Lord's Supper. And maybe there was a time, maybe there wasn't, but it's certainly doesn't feel like this time. It certainly feels like when, when the Lord puts these texts in front of me and I have to figure out how to say them, my heart and my mind want to be very careful not to levy some kind of obligatory statement on people because it just pushes people out the door. But the reality is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, be baptized, and enjoy the fellowship of Jesus Christ, which is represented by the Lord's Supper. I don't have a better answer. Lord's Supper is emblematic of the full nourishing life we have in Jesus Christ. Baptism is emblematic of our decision to follow the Lord as Lord and Savior. We make the decision, and then we embrace the person. Now, there's a few spiritual spinoffs of that, but that's about it and it's showing up here in the 12th chapter. Now, someone might say, this feels very exclusionary, Exclusionary, and I, and I can appreciate that, but I want you to see the inclusive nature of the scriptures here. Watch, watch what the Lord does, okay? Because what he's doing here is radical, and we don't even see it. Listen to this part, verse 44. But every slave that is bought for money may eat it after you have circumcised him. That is radical. So among the Jewish people, if you owned a Midianite slave, a slave that was not of your people, a mixed multitude slave, okay? By the way, the Lord's not a huge fan of slavery. He's taking who the people are and he's slowly redeeming this idea, okay? He's not a huge fan of slavery. He's not a big fan of polygamy. By the time you get... By the time you get way into the New Testament, both of those have pretty much been answered. Okay, but he's, he's meeting the people where they're at. Watch what he's doing. In, in, in this world he's in, slavery is a universal reality. Okay. Universal reality. There is no people group known to archaeologists at this time that do not operate in the mores of slavery. Okay? So he writes to them and he says, Imagine you have... A Midianite slave. You're a Hebrew with a Midianite slave. And that slave wants to take the Lord's Supper. The slave goes, and by the way, a slave here it could be servant, hired, you know, it's a very broad idea. So it's not just focused on slave. But that person wants to take the Lord's Supper or the Passover. I want to share in the Passover. I want that God to be my God. What the Lord is saying is this is easy. Just circumcise them. Which may not feel easy to you. But given it if you see the Passover meal as just a meal, circumcision is not worth it. Just like if you see the Lord's Supper as just a meal, well, I would say then it's not just a meal. It's representative of our life in Christ. So when you're somebody who's saying, I want that story to be true of me, I want the story of God passing over me with mercy and saving me out of of slavery into freedom, I want that to be my story, the Lord says, listen, have them be circumcised and then they're true. Well, something else happens that's not here in the text, but it just happened, which is that slave is no longer a Midianite, is he? He is now a Jew. Which, by the way, in Hebrew law, sets the timer on when he will no longer be a slave. Because you cannot, you cannot have a Jewish slave indefinitely. Every seven years, they go free. It was God's way of protecting the Jewish people. So you have a a Jewish uncle who's an alcoholic, and he bets the farm in a gambling match, and now he's out. Well, he can go over to his neighbor and go, can I be your slave? Yeah, come on in and be my slave. Right? And he can work for his neighbor so that he can feed his family as a slave. But the notion is, the notion is in the law is you cannot use this as a way of gaining indefinite power or influence in your neighborhood or over your neighbor. Every seven years, he will go scot-free home. He's free. So you see what's happening here? If you have, the Lord says, listen, if you have slaves among you who want to be part of this, this, this want to be part of me, they can be. And all they do is, when they're circumcised, they enter in, and now they have the full rights of citizens underneath my law. There is no God like this. When you look at the ancient world, this is radical, beyond. The non-believing scholar of theology would say, this was not written in 1430 BC. It's not possible. This is one of their primary definitions for this is why it had to be written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later is because this doesn't exist back then. You just no people had a theology of a god like this. There's no god in the known world who seems more concerned about his relationship with a person than people's ordered relationships. The Lord is essentially toppling their social structure to say, I'm more concerned that he has, you see this slave the way I see this slave than that you see the slave the way you want to see the slave. If he wants to be in me, then he is a citizen of the kingdom of God and you need to treat him so. so. The same thing happens a little later. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. In other words, if you have somebody who wants to come in, welcome them in through baptism in the Lord's Supper. It's a gate. It's the doorway for the person who is not and desires to be to say, I follow Jesus. Welcome. Welcome. This morning we read in Galatians, right? In in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, because God has his view. There's another verse here that, that is challenging, just challenging in how radical it is. Look at verse 46. So this is the slave, the slave has full rights in, and now listen to the meal. I just want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that you are the head of a home and that you have slaves, but these slaves want to have your God. And so the head of the home gets circumcised and now your God is their God. So now your Passover is their Passover. Now listen, now your table is their table in this meal. It shall be eaten in one house. There's a sense of all the people, in, in the Hebrew, when they say in the household of Abraham, the household of Abraham was Abraham, Sarah, his kids, and his heads his servants. There's a sense of, if they join the family of God, I, the Lord, elevate them so that you see them the way I see them. We see things like baptism, membership. I think in our culture today, we see these things as requirements obligations, rules. I I suppose they are. There are way more than that. They're ways of keeping the fellowship pure. Helping the fellowship to know itself. Who are we? we? Where do we circumscribe the boundary of saying, this is who we are and we're not that? The Lord says, this is how you do it. Those who are in Christ come through baptism. Those who claim to be in Jesus Christ, who want to share in his body and his blood, the blood of the new covenant, they come through baptism. Now, I know, and I'll end end this way, I, I feel obligated to just lay out for you, and some of you are like, this is easy. Why is he even being so careful? I'm careful because I know that there's so many different ways and shapes and forms to have received baptism on the way into this fellowship. And so I'm not, and my heart is not trying to strong-arm someone to say, well, you need to right now do it the way we did it, we do it here, and your way is dumb and a tomfoolery. That's not my spirit at all. In fact, I would say, if, if you've come, if you've come and you were sprinkled, or, or if you've come and, and your, your childhood baptism was still meaningful, I would say, slow down, let the ministry of the Holy Spirit work His truth out. I have no timer on that. I just I want I think it's important for us to appreciate as a body why we have these things and the role that they play. And to invite people in. And there are, I'm sure, because I've been this way myself, I'm sure there are people who have truly enjoyed being the mixed multitude who travels alongside of the fellowship without actually being part of the fellowship. That's a fun place to be sometimes, because you're not responsible because you don't have to be committed. Because when you get a craving to go back to Egypt to have all the delicious food, you can just leave. And I do, I think, I think it would be right and loving of a church to say, that that's not great. And there's a better way. And that way comes through confession of Jesus Christ, obedience to baptism, and then sharing in our Lord's Supper. Amen, let me pray. Lord, uh, the texture of of your word this morning and of the teachiness of it, I pray. I pray your Spirit would uh, would work and work it out for people, for others. I pray, Lord, that we we would we your your children would grow in a way that we would use things like baptism as a way of welcoming people as an aid of inviting people into Christ as a way of remi- giving them something that they can look to and remember and lean on as as this is this is how I, this is when I knew this was a day that I became a new citizen I I got a new I was new here Lord, I ask your spirit to just minister deeply in all the various forms of Christian traditions uh, that are are, our reality today, Lord, with so many different flavors and shapes of people who profess Christ and of definitions around these things, Lord. And and I I ask you, Lord, in faith to help to the person, each person work these things out. But Lord, help us to know who we are and and who we are not um, so that your name may be preserved for generations to come. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.